people that don't stop to uh, listen and look uh, repeat themselves ad nauseum. And he had this way of making every musician believe they were just the best thing that had ever happened. Very much about avoiding uh, the kind of autocratic approach. Hello and welcome to The Common Creative. My name is Chris Meredith. And my name is Paul Fairweather. And today we have a very special guest, uh, a person who's Chief Executive of Opera Australia. He's the former Managing Director of the Sydney Symphony. He studied music at uh, Oxford University in the UK. And what's more, a qualified helicopter pilot. Um, We've just recorded the show. Paul, what did you get out of this amazing recording? Chris, I was absolutely awestruck. As, as you say, you know, we're on a mission to open up the discussion about creativity in business. And my expectation was that we we're going to hear about creativity in a creative enterprise. But what I learned and Rory's insights about the application of creativity into business from learnings from Opera Australia and the Sydney Sympathy Orchestra was just mind-blowing. Uh, I, I am awestruck. Absolutely the kind of guest that we feel hits, hits the nail on the head for the common creative. Yet he's a, a successful business person. He's a deep thinker. Um, he's highly qualified in the creative arts and in business. And what's more, he's such a nice guy as well. Uh, let's get him in. Let's hear from Rory Jeffs. Rory, um, a huge welcome to The Common Creative. It's great to have you on the show. We're very excited because of your background at, um, obviously, the Opera Australia, but also Sydney Symphony. And I learned the other day that you're also a qualified helicopter pilot, which is very intriguing. Anyway, welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. It's Welcome, Rory. Fantastic to have you here. You're very honoured. I, th- I wonder if we could start by chatting... Uh, about because you're also a, a trained musician you studied music at oxford university and i just thought it'd be lovely to hear how you ended up if you like leading and managing creative organizations like the symphony and opera australia rather than performing not being on stage but behind the stage how did that transition happen and what's it like being on each side of the fence well i uh, as you say i mean i was incredibly fortunate when i was young um I was a music scholar at school. I played the piano and I sang and all those things and uh, was very fortunate in that I got a a choral scholarship to go to Christchurch at Oxford. Um, So had an amazing three years as an undergraduate. Uh, I actually read music, um, which means in in the UK, that means you studied music um, and uh, got a music degree. But the reason actually I did a music degree was it was the only way I could possibly get in to uh, a university like Oxford was to study music because the choir master was also the music tutor and he really wanted me in the choir. So um, uh, that's how I got in there. And it was an incredible experience for three years singing in what back then and even now is one of the finest choirs in the UK, despite the fact that I was in it. Um, But what what it also taught me was I was surrounded by uh, incredible singers who were a lot better than I was. And so while it was an amazing experience, at the same time, by the end of the three years, I recognized that I was not going to be a professional singer because there were a lot of people who were a lot better than I was. And 
So while it it, it kind of embedded that love of, of particularly choral music, but also just classical music more generally in my soul, um, it also left me with a very clear direction not to pursue being a performer. Um, and so that's why after I left university, it was clear, you know, I wanted to find a way to be able to contribute to the art form, but not necessarily be a performer. Now, the, the thing, the theme we're exploring on The Common Creative is, is kind of how do you harness creativity in the world of big organisations like um, Australia and so on? I'm fascinated that in a way you must have one of the toughest jobs, on, well, in many ways, the toughest job on the planet, but particularly because your your role as chief executive is to kind of um, harangue, corral and organise people who themselves are very creative uh, in the shape of opera singers and some of them are quite literally prima donnas, aren't they? So um, and we all know how hard they are to, um, to deal with. What have you learned about building an organisation that's full of creative people? So I think um, organisations like Opera Australia are very similar to most businesses, except that there is a very high level of emotional intelligence, if you like, of EQ within uh, a large proportion of the workforce. And so that normal balance between the kind of uh, rational thinking and emotional thinking is something that you really need to bear in mind. Um, just like any business, there are like large business, there's a lot of competing priorities. And I see the role of CEO as being one of actually managing and mediating all of those competing priorities to achieve what you see as being the best outcome. When I was, uh, when, uh, to, just to talk on that for a second, when I was a, a child, um, we lived in London and we used to go on holiday down to Cornwall. And that involved an eight and a half hour car journey. And my father, who was a scientist, he was a metallurgist, would always start a conversation about is a message the one that is sent or the message that is received? And he was brilliant at arguing both sides of that. Um, so whatever happened, you always lost the argument. But it went on for hours and hours and hours in the back seat of the car. And what I realize now is that what my dad was doing was actually talking about when you're communicating and when you're talking to any particular person, it's really important to think about how what's the message they're receiving because quite often you know you're so focused on saying what you want to say and you're looking at the person and wondering why they don't seem to be getting what you're saying the reason is their mindset is in a completely different place to you and uh, so you know good, good old dad he was trying to give me a life lesson or all of us a life lesson and that's been incredibly important to me um, and very often I say to people, remember, you've got two ears and one mouth and you should use them in that proportion and really make sure when you're talking to people that they are getting what it is the message you're trying to give. The words are a route to that, but actually it's much deeper than that. And what you want to do is to make sure they understand um, how it is that you're saying things and not just what the words you're using. And um, I think that in an, in, in an arts organization or in a lot of organizations, um, that is incredibly important because where in some businesses you want people to uh, react in a very logical way um, and systems-based reactions, in an art organization, you do want people to apply creativity. So for instance, in a pilot, 
the last thing you want in an emergency is for them to go, how shall we creatively address this situation? Uh, you want them just to go bang and follow the systems. Um, but in an arts organization, very often what you're, you're challenging people to do is not to arrive at a solution um, and to give you all the answers, but to actually think what are the right questions. I think um, one of my great um, heroes is Churchill. And I think, well, I think it was him, if it wasn't, it should have been, who said, um, sometimes it's more important to work out the right questions than to have all the answers. Rory, a couple of things there. One is, and Chris tells me you're a, a qualified helicopter pilot, and so we might, we might uh, go there in a little bit. But I just want you to said there, it was really interesting, and if you saw the movie Sully, um, about the you know star Tom Hanks, I did, and and that's exactly what you're um, uh, talking about there because you know they were trying to convict him of a mistake on the basis that he had time to think about it, you know, and and uh, and that's what you're talking about because you know he reacted as he had to react, uh, and you know, and so so that, that's a really interesting thing. I um, I also was just uh, thinking when you were talking earlier just now about a, a quote from Alan Watts, who says that people that don't stop to uh, listen and look uh, repeat themselves ad nauseum. So uh, that thing about the message, you know, some people, uh, instead of stopping to listen to see whether people actually are getting their message, they try to ram it in by just repeating it over and over again ad nauseum. Uh, yeah. so it's like that definition of madness is to do the same thing over and ago and expect a different result. Yes, exactly. Rory, I, I can't resist asking you about this. this your, your role as a helicopter pilot. Um, personally, I, I, I think of myself as a creative and therefore the worst possible pilot you could imagine. You do not want me at the controls of a, an aircraft. If it's I'll bear that in mind, Chris. Please do, yes. <laughs> so so I, was, I was intrigued to see that uh, um, you know, you, as a musician and a leader of a creative organisation, I would imagine you, you feel very comfortable with the idea of creativity. And yet, as a helicopter pilot, you want to be kind of like a robot, I imagine. You do not want to deviate from the procedures. Is, is that a conflict for you? Do you have different sides of your brain that you can tap into? How does a helicopter become a creative and vice versa? I guess it's the question. The answer is yes, you're, you're right. I think that, uh, and perhaps one of the things that I have learned is to use, uh, I've read this brilliant book once called Adapted Leadership or something like that, which talks about the, how you should uh, approach different situations and actually adapt the style with which you approach those situations depending on who's involved and what the outcome you want is and what the particular issue is. So you're absolutely right that when you are flying or when you're learning to fly, then effectively it's like a, an outward bound course every time you get in the aircraft because you're learning to do something that you couldn't do the day before. So it's the ultimate in experiential education. Um, and you go through huge ups and downs of confidence. Basically, your skill level gradually increases in a fairly linear way, but your confidence and your ability to be able to uh, believe in yourself goes up and down enormously while you're learning. And that's the whole process of, of learning to fly. Um, I had a, an amazing moment where my two worlds collided, which was, um, I was flying a helicopter, it was over the Malvern Hills, and um, 
uh, I realized I was flying over Edward Elgar's birthplace. And um, rather naughtily, I had a, a music system, which I could plug into in my helicopter. I'm sure I wasn't supposed to, but I did. Um, and so I listened to uh, The Dream of Gerontius, which is one of the greatest pieces ever written, in my humble, or not so humble, opinion. Um, as the sun set over the Morven Hills, flying a helicopter where I'm, I'm watching the temperatures, the pressures, my height, speed, rotors, everything, um, with one side of my brain, while being completely obsessed by this incredible piece of music going on in the other part of my brain. And it was a, one of those moments where I recognized the challenge of maintaining um, a sense of control while actually wanting to lose that control. Because, you know, I wanted to completely immerse myself in the emotional context, but realized that that probably wasn't such a good idea. The other, actually, the other, the other time I had that experience was um, the only uh, time in the UK anyway, I was stopped by the police for speeding was going down uh, the mall on my motorbike uh, outside Buckingham Palace, which is a 30 mile an hour speed limit, doing 65 miles an hour, <laughs> listening to Jacqueline Dupre playing the old Garcello Pacetto. <laughs> and I was just completely um, away with the fairies. Uh, did, and I was pulled over by the police. Did, did he, I would hope you didn't get a ticket if you just explained the situation. I'm sure that would have uh, got you off the hook. Sadly, sadly, <laughs> the Bobby didn't seem too interested. Um, Rory, just your your description of learning to fly uh, and the the lack of co- lack of confidence and the highs and lows. Um, I imagine there might be some parallels in you know in learning learning to sing uh, as well or perform more so than sing. Um, you know, in that in that whole you know creative um, uh, you know lack of confidence at times that we all have. You know, self doubt. Um, did you? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think one of the things you learn, um, particularly uh, if I talk a bit about when I was managing director of the Sydney Symphony, one of the things you learn is that the difference between a really good performance and an outstanding performance by the same group of musicians is self-belief and an ironclad ability to be able to uh, perform at your best and overcome stage fright and insecurities and uh, you know creative people inevitably have a lot of securities and the most successful ones are able to build a kind of shell around themselves which in a negative sense can result in um, you know that deeperish behavior um, but very often um, it is a sort of self-defense mechanism about being able to perform at your best um, uh, probably the greatest exponent I know of being able to leverage that because very often that then comes to who the conductor is who's out the front giving them that sense of confidence to perform at their best and overcome the kind of um, those little voices at the back of your mind. Uh, And the greatest person I think I've come across doing doing that was Vladimir Ashkenazi, who was the uh, principal conductor of the SSO when I was there. And he had this way of making every musician believe they were just the best thing that had ever happened to the entire canon of work. Um, and because he's such an incredible and revered and outstanding musician himself, if Ashkenazi tells you you're doing really well, then you really believe you're doing really well. And so his leadership style was one of giving everyone that incredible confidence um, to the extent that um, 
if there was a problem in a particular performance, so there was uh, or one particular player uh, at the SSO who clearly was coming to the end of their career, and he would come to me as the managing director and say, this particular player, perhaps, you know, we need to think of a way of moving them on from the organization because they're really not performing at the level they should be. Um, but don't say I said anything. <laughs> so, <laughs> so suddenly that, that'd be me as the managing director, in theory, had no right to any artistic views whatsoever, uh, who would be going in and tapping them on the shoulder. And there's one particular person, it was just for a European tour by the SSO, who I had to do, the, had this conversation with. And they said, but... But Mr. Ashkenazi says that Europe is waiting to hear me. (laughs) So there's a slight disconnect there. I I, I have a thing that I talk about CEO as the creativity empowerment officer. But maybe in that case, you were the uh, chief execution (laughs) officer. (laughs) Well, I tried to do it in a nice way. I always remember this thing, a message received, a message sent. The first time, this is going back a long time now, when I was in the UK, that I had to make somebody, uh, or I had to fire somebody because they weren't doing their job. I tried to do it so nicely and with such uh, care that at the end of the conversation, the person didn't realize they'd been fired. <laughs> and uh, there's a great, there's a great uh, film called Moneyball with Brad Pitt, where he's a baseball coach for the Red Sox. And he at one point says to his sidekick, go and tell this person that they're being traded. And um, the person says, I can't do that. I can't be that, that blunt. You know, I have to kind of make it a bit more gentle than that. And Brad Pitt says, look, if you're going to get shot, do you want one to the head or do you want four to the stomach and bleed to death? <laughs> it's like, you know, at, at times you have to give a blunt message and allow people to hate you for it because that is part of their own coping mechanism with what it is you're having to do. Is that the, I was going to ask you if the role of the conductor and the role of the, let's say, chief exec is, a, is the same. In, but actually, I wonder, is that, is that the difference, that the, the conductor's job is a creative job and therefore they, they have permission to, let's say, soft soap all of their creatives to get the best performance out of them? But the chief executive has to know how to put one in the head when needed. Is that, is that the difference? No, it very much depends on, you know, different conductors have different styles. There are conductors who are legendary for being incredibly, um, how shall I put it, forceful in a way that would not be considered appropriate nowadays. Let's put it like that. Um, (laughs) There were conductors who were famous for having meetings with the managing director. And when the managing director was not giving them what they wanted, they pulled a gun out and put it on the table and re-asked the question. (laughs) Um, there are, that's going back a bit now. That's, that's not my current experience. But, um, going back to last know, week. Things, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. So it's, um, you know, I think that uh, you know, conductors need to know how to get the best performance out of somebody. And that's a fairly, uh, I was going to say it's limited, but it's not. But it's a different, just a different set of skills. And... Um, uh, uh, involvement than for, for someone like a managing director or a CEO. But obviously the relationship between um, the artistic leadership and the organizational leadership, if it's not the same person, which in some places it is, is incredibly important as a um, sim- symbiotic relationship between those two roles. I, I, I just had a question. It was just... Um when you're talking about it, going back to something you said earlier about 
you know, lead, leading a, a creative organisation um, like you do and have done, uh, the difference is that, you know, there's a, tends to be a high level EQ and so that sort of, you know, there's a different balance between the creative and the pragmatic or whoever you think it. Do, do you see any, um, but any specific lessons or similarities in what you do that, you know, could be applied uh, to other, uh, you know, high powered CEOs that aren't in artistic field um, in terms of, you know, getting the best out of people and, creative, and so, creatively? Yeah. Uh, it really, it kind of comes back to slightly what I was saying about message sent, message received, because what, what's really interesting within a, within an artistic ensemble, um, communications between players, uh, if one thinks about a chamber group, for instance, are really interesting. And one of the, th because musicians never overtly criticize each other. So when you have, a, say, a string quartet that's playing and people are wanting to talk about how, how they think the music should be interpreted or that somebody else is playing out of tune or something like that. They would never say, you're playing out of tune or you're playing too loud here. Um, it will always be around an inclusive way of saying, I think we should be doing this or we that. And so it's very much about avoiding uh, the kind of autocratic approach because those string quartets don't last very long because you get all the um the, the the kind of human dynamics that grow within that and you get a dysfunctional family basically so uh, one of the things we used to do when i was at the sso and i may well still do this was there's a thing called the fellowship program which is about helping young people who are fantastic players to learn to be professional parts of an orchestra or players within an orchestra and all of a lot of those skills are nothing to do with how well they play the instrument it's about all the other stuff and we used to take a string quartet to some of our sponsors and sit them down and they would play. And then we would talk about how it is within that group people are communicating and encouraging business units to actually think about within the sponsoring company to think about, so how do you go about interacting with your colleagues in other functional areas around what your priorities are while understanding what their priorities are? And whether that's an opera company or whether it's a building company, you know, in opera, I mean, we have singers, we have an orchestra, we have wig makers, we have set designers, we have carpenters, we have uh, mechanists whose job it is to cart stuff around and to put up sets. It's, it's an incredibly broad range of skills and uh, just like a building company. And so being able to mediate all of that and trying to see how does that all tie together into a single thing I think is is incredibly valuable as a way of actually being able to create a sense of common purpose within an organization, whether it's an opera company or a, a building company uh, um, or maybe not Amazon. But, you know, it's um, it, it's a it has very, very broad range of um, applications. And when I talk with CEOs from. You know, whether it's large uh, mining companies or whatever. The, 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 what's extraordinary is the common areas of experience and uh, enlightenment as you go through experience rather than them being particularly different. I'm, I'm wondering if all companies should do something on a stage because it's the ultimate test of your teamwork and your communication. All the world's so. a stage, Chris. Yeah, yeah, of course it is. Of course it is. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, I think that's a, a wonderful moment to kind of draw this fascinating conversation to a close. I've learned so much about 
the different sides of the brain and how to listen to Elgar and how you, I might <laughs> maybe fly a helicopter. Uh, but about communication and what you receive versus what you sent. Um, and wonderful amount about you as well, Rory. Thank you very much indeed. You're very welcome. Thanks a lot. Uh, thanks, Roy. That was so fantastic. We, um, we could have gone on for hours. Uh, thank you. Thanks for joining us today. If you'd like not to miss any future episodes, please subscribe. And if you subscribe, it helps others find us. And a huge thank you to Zane Weber, our audio engineer, to Michaela Rock, our producer. I'm Chris Meredith. We'll see you next week. I'm Paul Fiorella. Join us then. <laughs>